2021 and 2022 show all of the signs of being able to break historic norms as we send kids back to school. I mean, my son is going to college in the fall and the idea that he can actually go there is a level of emotion that I don't normally bring to everyday life. That along with what is very simply likely to be a huge economic expansion has the potential to buck those trends. So can I assure you that Donald Trump is not coming back? Absolutely not. I firmly believe that he's going to. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I spoke recently to the prominent Democratic political pollster Jill Normington, a partner at Normington Pets and Associates. I enjoyed getting to know a bit about her background and work and to talk more in depth about polling, campaign strategy, and politics. So after a quick word from our sponsor, listen to my interview with Jill Normington of Normington Pets. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Jill, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is Jill Normington. I am a partner at the Democratic polling firm, Normington Pets and Associates. I'm actually a clinical psychologist by training and education. I ended up in Washington, D.C., getting my Ph.D. in clinical psychology, which I did not finish. I got this job at the firm where I am now a partner largely because of getting a set of drinks at a bar in D.C. after a Washington sport and social club volleyball game on the mall, the way all good careers are built. How is your volleyball game? Uh, I mean, I played varsity volleyball in high school, despite the fact that I'm not quite five foot four. Were you a setter? No. And this is going to be one of the more surprising pieces. I was a hitter in olden times when I was young. I had a pretty good vert. Sounds like it. Normally, that the, the six-footers are, are doing the hitting. I guess it wasn't at a college level. No, I didn't play in college. I played yeah. softball in college. Ah, uh, What position? My natural position is that as a center fielder, but I spent a good portion of my time in college as a catcher because... I have a good arm. Do you find that that sports background comes in handy in politics at all? I 
think the answer is unequivocally yes. How so? Um, one, I know all of the metaphors. <laughs> That's useful. And and they're always used. Yeah. They're ubiquitous across, you know, uh, across many disciplines, but they're very popular in politics and I'm very familiar with them. I'm not baffled by them, but I am also a woman in a profession that is largely dominated by men and my ability to be conversant in Big Ten football has been an asset for my career. Well, I would think that also a background in clinical psychology would be enormously helpful. Is it? It it is. I actually tell people pretty often that I consider what I do to be applied psychology. And I believe that both as a pollster where I have a good foundation in research methodology and the scientific method and those factors, but it is also uniquely applicable to the arguments that we put in front of voters, that there are specific mechanisms that we use that capitalize on the things that we know from social psychology and the things that we learn about group dynamics and how to manage a team and how to get the most out of both the people who work for me, but also the people with whom I work on a on a campaign and understanding how those group dynamics come into play. It is a skill set that I rely on in every aspect of this job. But I think in particular, it has an influence on how I think about the way that my work gets used in a campaign and how I explain targeting and things like that to to people on campaigns that inevitably, because um, my background is in psychology, I tend not to think of persuadable voters. But in fact, I picture a persuadable voter. um, And I think about her, because it's usually a her, and I think about her a lot. What does she think about? What are her motivations? Where does she come from? What issues are important to her? What is her background? And then what are the mechanisms that we can use to, one, give her the information that we want her to have? How does she consume information? Who does she trust? What are her values? So that it, it really has an impact on how I think about the delivery mechanisms, because I tend to think about it as as one person that I'm trying to convince o- over the course of an election cycle, rather than, I think the way that a lot of people think about voter persuasion or voter motivation is that it's, you know, it's pieces and parts um, and jigsaw puzzles. And I really, I think it is largely because of my my background that I tend to think about it as like a one person as a symbol for all of those other people. Well, one thing I share with you is an incomplete PhD. <sighs> uh, all, all the best people that I know are graduate school dropouts. <laughs> I got through my general exams and never wrote a dissertation. But I think I, I learned quite a bit through that process. Can you be more specific about what you learned in psychology? I mean, you've talked about sort of the fact that it was useful, but what findings or other things in the discipline that you picked up 
do you find yourself applying? One of the things that I use all of the time is the idea that the human brain is fundamentally lazy. That is one of the foundations of how we process information is one of the things they try to teach you from the very beginning in psychology is that if the human brain can think of a cheap and easy way to process information, it will do it. We don't like complex ideas. We like simple ideas. And we like relational thinking. Um, That is how our brain, that is how it's been honed over millions of years of evolution. It is why things like partisanship matter, because it is a lens through which we can process information. It is a way of dividing the world into us versus them that is simple and easy and just how ingrained that notion is, is something that I use every single day and that psychology teaches you from the beginning that if you can find a simpler way to do something, you should. Jill, where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up actually all over the place. My dad was career Navy. And so I grew up all over both the country uh, and the world, although primarily in California. We stopped there many and on our way to many places. So I was born near San Diego. My dad was stationed at Port Wainimi. So uh, we lived near there. And then we moved to the Philippines where we used to have a military base. And then we moved back to California. My dad was stationed in the Bay Area, but the closest we could afford to live to the Bay Area then was in a suburb of Sacramento, uh, which is better than a two-hour drive away that my dad made that commute every day. And then we lived in Hawaii. And then I lived in Colorado after my, my parents got divorced. And then I moved back to California and... I've been in D.C. now. I moved here to go to graduate school, and I've been here now for 26 years. This is easily uh, the longest I've ever lived anywhere, and certainly the longest I've ever lived in one house. It's a big country, and it seems like also an asset to have been in more than one place, because political cultures do vary extraordinarily around the country. When did the politics piece come to you? I actually was hired to be an analyst at the firm where I am a partner now to work exclusively on corporate work. We were the primary uh, supplier of customer satisfaction research for America Online in the 90s. Um, So if you were a member of America Online, the chances that our firm reached out to you to find out if you were satisfied with AOL or unsatisfied with AOL, the chances were pretty good. We, we, We talked to you at some point over those years. And I actually got involved in politics completely by happenstance. The partners at my firm both did corporate work as well as political work. And it was kind of a slow day in the office. And there 
was going to be a meeting in the office with a woman who is a state senator from Virginia. And because it was slow, they asked me if I would be willing to take notes during the meeting. And this woman came into the office and she was talking about, you know, her campaign and how uh, she had this big idea that her big accomplishment for the legislative session, her idea was that she wanted to get funding for there to be a librarian in every elementary school in Virginia. And so like any good public servant, she wanted to go do her research. And she started touring elementary schools in her Senate district. And it's not an exact quote, but she said something along the lines of, and that is when I realized how stupid I am. Uh, And she said, I went to my daughter's elementary school and I thought to myself, yes, great. A librarian would really help these kids. They could have designated reading time. That would be fantastic. And she said, and then I went to the next elementary school, the closest one. um, And it was less than two miles away. But instead of an elementary school that was majority white, this was an elementary school that was majority black. And she realized that having a librarian at that school would in fact be stupid because one, they didn't have a library and two, even if they did, they didn't have books to put in it. So you can't solve a problem with a library when those kinds of inequities are there from the beginning. And she said, this is it. This is what the cause of my life is going to be is balancing out you know, the inequities that exist from, I'm getting a little misty just thinking about it because I was hooked. Yeah. Like from that moment, I was like, this is, this is right. This is how you affect change in the world is these sort of aha moments. And that, you know, when the meeting was over, I turned to the partners in the room and I was like, I don't care. Like, I will work nights, I will work weekends, but I want to work on this race. I want to help her get reelected because that's where it is. And that I pretty much have only done politics since then. I was in. I have now interviewed hundreds of people for this somehow. And over and over, people tell me that they're noticing of inequities in education as a young person spurred them into politics. It's so painful to hear again, like that this great country has such a big problem in that. I mean, I wrote my senior college paper on the differences in income that come from educational attainment. Like I was the first person in my family to to graduate from college. My brother went, he didn't graduate. The difference was, were so profound. I just didn't know there was anything you could ever really do about it. I just thought it was, it was what it was. But the idea that she thought she could make a change that I knew from all of my own research, that it could, it could, it could actually change our country for the better. That's what it's all about. What was the history of the firm before you joined it? The original configuration of the, of the firm when I joined it, 
uh, David Petz and Anna Bennett and Mark Blumenthal were the partners at the firm. Dave and I are still together. He's the Pets and Normington Pets. He he thought Pets Normington sounded kind of creepy, so we didn't call the firm that. Thank goodness. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's very smart. Uh, Anna Bennett has hung up her crosstabs. <laughs> she does not. She does not pull anymore. Mark left the firm to write about polling. Polster.com. Yeah, that's yeah, Mark. I know Mark. Yeah. Yeah. He left the firm to write about it. He was he was a seminal part of the sort of self-reflection and the criticism of the industry to really take a look at itself and examine what it could do better. Um, and I learned really important lessons from all three of them. I continue to learn. Um, important lessons from them. And I was extremely fortunate to work at at a firm where a woman was a founding partner, which is a relatively unusual thing. Um, when I first you know got started, I got started at this firm in, in 1999. So that was, a, that was a good long while ago, 22 years ago, there were not very many women partners in any kind of a political consulting arena. Um, it's certainly a, a little bit different today, but Anna's modeling of what that looked like, I think made me never really doubt that that was a possibility. How do you evaluate the, the state of particularly political polling? Sure. I think we're always in a process of reflection and innovation. But I also believe that we have a different challenge to overcome, which is that there are any number of folks who look at polling data who often get called um, pollsters who aren't pollsters. They're analysts, which is a, a fundamentally different role to play. And I think that the rules that get applied are in some ways a misunderstanding of what data looks like. Let me explain what I mean. In 2010, which was a terrible year uh, for Democrats in terms of performance, your average Democratic incumbent in the House likely had a poll um, that was their benchmark poll that had them, the incumbent, probably 20 points ahead of their Republican challenger. And a lot of interpretations of that particular piece of data would be that that poll was trash because they didn't go on to win by 20 points. But I don't know any pollsters who were getting those data back, looking all the way through what they were attempting to do and turning to those Democratic incumbents and saying, no problem, man, you got it. We're totally going to win by 25 points. Instead, we were all holding their hands saying, look, like this is not going to work out. Like nothing we do works these people who have no name ID go from 25 to 50 after we say they're a Republican and they want to repeal Obamacare, the race is essentially over. And there's nothing that we can do to break through to that. But the, the analysts of those polls would come back and tell you that, you know, 
those numbers are invalid. And even when you get to the tracking stage of a race and you're looking at your data and we know we're past the benchmark and your, your incumbent is now at 47 and let's just say the challengers at 47, that looks like a 50-50 race at the end of the day and a proper analysis of what those undecideds look like. Very clearly, I can look at them and tell you, guess what? We're not getting any of them or we're going to get a half a percentage of the undecideds who are left. And we, all of the analysis of polling is one of the horse race and two always assumes that the undecideds break 50 50. I'm not sure I've ever been part of a race where the undecideds break 50 50. There's almost always a disproportionate allocation of where those votes are going to go. I say that as also only part of the answer. There are definitely still problems with political polling that have gotten worse, especially when it comes to the horse race. And the op-ed that a bunch of us wrote acknowledges that there are specifically in rural areas serious problems with non-response bias that cannot be accounted for by waiting that cannot be accounted for by any of the factors that we see in the voter file. There are simply some uh, people who are definitely going to vote who refuse to participate in the political opinion process and who inevitably end up getting replaced in the sample with voters who are more democratic than those voters are. It is both things at the at the same time happening. Well, the surprise in rural turnout for Trump in both presidential elections seems highly tied to that, which then affected, you know, all the Senate races that many people thought would be winnable for Democrats in 2020 that that weren't close. Is there more to say about that? to understand what was going on that you see that that isn't commonly known? I think we're still trying to get to the bottom of, of why that is. I believe very firmly that we're going to try everything we can think of to try to understand what the source of that non-response bias is. And if it's a solvable problem, it's it's not the military. We can't order people to take our surveys. But you could look at their lawn and see if they have a Trump sign. You know, like there might be some other way. Honestly, that's one of the things that we're considering. You know, before the telephone was widely in every household in America, going door to door is actually how political opinion surveys were done. People knocked on doors with clipboards and asked people questions. We sat in people's living rooms um, and, you know, took their temperature on various things. There's certainly, that's one of the things we're, we're talking about doing as part of this experimenting. Like, does, does that kind of contact allow us to reach these people? What race surprised you the most in 2020? The wholesale collapse of rural Hispanic vote in Texas. I worked for Gina Ortiz Jones in the Texas 23 race, and there were definitely signs through our polling that things weren't quite as rosy as I think we wanted them to be, but it was actually even worse than we were seeing. 
what happened there? I wish I knew the answer to that question. And I really don't. One of the things that hamstrung us, honestly, was an inability to be on the ground. You know, we would have had organizers, we would have had canvassers, we would have had a ton of anecdotal feedback that actually gets fed into the loop of a campaign. And what happens from a field and an organizer perspective is an integral part of how we make decisions as a campaign. And the Republicans were out there and we weren't. You think that's a campaign effect? I actually genuinely believe that our inability to run a normal field campaign was a huge hindrance for Democrats across the country. We made that decision sort of as a party. Well, I will tell you that we we tried in one of my races to send canvassers out. um, And uh, the very first weekend, two of our canvassers tested positive and we couldn't in good conscience send them back out there. That that doesn't seem responsible. Does it feel to you like the people that move that way in that election are likely to stay that way? Like, I hope not, but probably. You know, I've been a, a student of American politics for a long time. And frankly, what we're seeing is not a phenomenon. It's a long-term trend. Any intellectually honest evaluation of the long-term trends in rural areas, the long-term trends among white voters without a college degree, has to acknowledge that this is this is 30 years worth of trends. It seems like, at least observable, is that sometimes a community gets to a critical mass of party identification, and then it kind of goes over to one party, like the way the South has switched, the way California has really moved from a pretty close state to not really contested. It goes both ways. Does it feel like rural America has just moved past that threshold and most of your neighbors, like everybody is sort of saying the same thing to each other or is it, is it contestable? Um, I always believe that everything is contestable. And even if it's just uh, at the margins, the margins matter. They just, they absolutely do. The difference between getting 29% of the vote in a place and getting 33% of the vote is often the difference between winning and losing. It's very stark for me to drive before the presidential election into rural parts of Maryland and Virginia near where I am and see only Trump signs and then I don't know, after Biden wins to just see the city streets come alive with celebration, that's the way the country is to a great extent. Frankly, it is one of the things that makes doing polling possible. What I mean by that is geographic quotas are a huge part of how we create a representative sample and the self-sorting by geography is a huge part of why you can, you know, do 600 interviews in a state as large as Pennsylvania and still feel like you're pretty close to what the real numbers are because so long as you're controlling for geography, which is, you know, something we can know about people, the more accurate your your numbers are. So it's a 
it's good for polling. It's probably not that great for America. What, what does an engagement with your firm, with you, from a campaign look like? How do you find a client? How do you serve the client? What kind of advice do you give? What do they ask you? How do you fit into the kind of the variety of consultants that that they have to use these days? Yeah. How you find someone is, there are lots of different ways. A lot of it comes from referrals from people I currently work for. When I was first getting started, it was a very different process. A lot of building relationships with the folks who have the first access to the folks who are running. So in our business, the people who do the recruiting tend to be the people from the committees and the people from the larger organizations that actually recruit candidates to run in the first place. They go out into local communities and look for people who are good matches to those communities, um, to those states, and they encourage them to run. And those people who have first formed those relationships with those candidates are often the people who put together the processes for candidates to put together their teams. And that includes managers and people who help them raise money, field people, as well as consultants. So a, a lot of the, the early work came from building those relationships in, in those organizations. And that, that persists today. You know, 20 years of doing this is a little bit different than, than it used to be mostly because I have a body of work that then people can use as, you know, something to judge before I'm even there. So for instance, uh, I won my very first race where I was the, the primary pollster uh, in suburban Chicago. And as a result, I have a lot of Illinois clients. One victory does tend to, to, to make you a sought after commodity in a particular place. And then when someone hires you, what are they looking for? Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure what they're looking for. I can tell you what they get. I believe very firmly in the idea that a campaign should be a team that the the manager and the field staff um, and all of the campaign staff as well as the consultants should operate together, that collectively we bring to the table such a rich body of experience that a lot of voices should be included in the decision-making apparatus. And I'm frankly only interested in being part of a race in which they want my opinion on stuff like press releases, that they're looking for the insights that I can give about places where we might hold field events. I am not interested in being part of a campaign in which I do a poll, I deliver the results, and they don't ever want to talk to me again. That's just not a any kind of an apparatus that, that I'm interested in. Uh, maybe it comes from the success of that approach working before, but I'm also just a, 
a believer in the idea that the collective tends to be smarter than its individual parts. Is there a campaign that you had that role in that really stands out for you over this career? The re-election just last cycle, actually, of Congresswoman Lee in Southern Nevada is a really excellent example of a team that worked really, really well together. We developed a somewhat unconventional strategy, and it wasn't exactly everyone agreeing at the beginning on, you know, going out uh, negative against our opponent out of the box, which is a pretty unconventional strategy for an incumbent who had, you know, pretty decent, favorable and job rating numbers. Tell me about that Congress person and their opponent. Susie Lee um, was elected to Congress for the first time. Uh, Her district is mostly in Henderson, Nevada, which is a suburb of Las Vegas. But geographically, it's huge. Most of the population is obviously right around Las Vegas itself, but it is it extends all the way to the southern tip of Nevada. So it's, it's mostly suburban. It has a significant population of Black, Hispanic, and Asian voters. And it also is plurality white voters without a college degree. It's an interesting district. And she was running for her very first re-election, which is always the most challenging, against a man named Dan Rodimer. He is a six foot seven, six foot eight, former professional wrestler. Wow. Um, he won that Republican primary. He's actually running for Congress in Texas right now in the special election. He is the kind of person who has like a larger than life personality, and he really embraces that part of who he is. Congresswoman Lee is a very different sort of personality. Her background comes from working with at-risk youth, trying to increase high school education levels, um, which is a serious problem in Southern Nevada. And not very close to professional wrestling of any sort. Not very close to professional wrestling. And we knew that 2020 was not going to be an easy election cycle. So my role there was to, to firmly understand what the what the political truths of the environment were. And we knew we were in a challenging uh, election cycle. There was just no denying that from looking at the data. I wish it was my idea. It wasn't my idea. Somebody else um, brought up the idea that maybe we should consider doing something that was not what we would normally do, which is to reintroduce our candidate, talk about our positives, and then maybe move on to the contrastive phase of the race. And instead to to do something else, to really try to, out of the box, make it clear that Rodeimer was an unacceptable alternative. We had some pretty exceptional opposition research we had a recording of a 911 call that his then girlfriend, now wife, had made for a domestic violence complaint um, and a series of other complaints to go along with that. But the, the audio recording 
turned out to be the basis of our initial piece of creative that we ran. The race at the end of the day um, was very close. We only won by a couple of points, but that was an entire team throwing around ideas, debating them, weighing the pros and cons of what about this, what about that, all within the confines of the firm understanding that the data gave us about how difficult that election cycle was going to be. And with the understanding that some of our early research indicated that despite what we thought, what our guts told us, the voters were not really in a mood to elect someone who didn't really have any experience. The unemployment rate in Southern Nevada was above 20%. You know, when tourism goes away, uh, Nevada really suffers. And these voters were looking for substance. And what we tried to show them was not only was he not substantive, not only was he all flash, but that he had some serious problems with regard to his character. And doing that first really enabled us to, to arrest his ability to grow his vote naturally in a way that a more generic Republican absolutely would have been able to do. I had a conversation a while ago with Michael Steele, who used to run the RNC, and he felt that sort of wildly paraphrasing that that when you have a, someone who can be a political phenomenon, like maybe a six foot seven wrestler could be, that if you don't hit them early, that you may lose your opportunity to. And he felt like that that's what the Republicans in the primary failed to do with Trump, is that they should have immediately come hard after him, whether that would have worked or not, who knows. But maybe this in this race, you stopped somebody early that might have gotten to be more of a runaway train. It's possible, but it was it was absolutely a reflection of a team that was was working really well together because we didn't all agree at the beginning. And that's that's how a good team should function, that all ideas should be entertained and debated that is what happened in that race. Mike Muir does our mail there and Rich Davis and, and David Dixon do the TV there. It was really a reflection of everybody focused and involved. What are the elements that keep you wanting to do this? I mean, you know, there's that competition that you take out of the sports. There's that passion that you attribute to, you know, pursuing equity. There's a lot of elements to helping run a polling business and the slog of campaigning. What do you point to in terms of motivation? There is a Japanese principle called ikigai. It means like your reason for being. And if you can achieve this, then you've achieved your reason for being. Well, one, it involves a Venn diagram, which any good pollster will tell you just makes them happy at their core, a good Venn diagram. But it is the unification of doing what you're good at. I like to think I'm pretty good at it. Doing what you love. And it is actually 
something that the win-loss thing is something that I just fundamentally understand and has always been inherently motivated. Competitiveness. Yes, competitiveness. It also involves something very practical, which is something that I am at my core too, which is something that you can be paid for. Like this is a service that that generates uh, revenue. And then importantly, and this I think is the real answer to your question and what keeps me coming back is that it also includes what the world needs. That if you can find a unification of those four things, then you can find your reason for being. And this work is absolutely that for me. Like I know people who dread going to work. I don't dread going to work. I love the beginning of a campaign when everything feels like it might be possible. It's fantastic. Very few people, I think, can say that about their job holistically. And it's always inspiring to talk to people who do have that feeling because it's what everyone's kind of shooting for um, if they're aware enough and have the option. If you know that like everybody else is sort of feeling that same thing, it feels like you're all in it together. You, You get a sense of of teamwork. I am thrilled when things go well on races I'm not even a part of, because I still feel like that's my team. I mean, one other aspect of competitiveness when you're a political consultant is landing the client rather than the other polling firm and the, the really attractive and interesting candidates and, and, and groups. How do you compete in that space? How do you see the competitive field You know, what's interesting about this job is that I don't work with other pollsters all that often because we're competitors. One of the things that was the most rewarding for me about working on the Hillary for America campaign was the actual collegiality between the various polling firms who were a part of that, the ability to bounce ideas off of other people who do what I do for a living, to learn from them, to work together on, you know, sort of the same, you know, but different projects. I have an enormous amount of respect for all of what I would consider to be my colleagues and Am I sad when I lose out on a race and somebody else got it and not me? Absolutely. Like, I I feel like if I pitch it, I, I should get it. But I think that would be bad if I didn't. And sometimes the the criteria are just fundamentally not something I can I can measure up to. Sometimes somebody has a lot more experience in a state than I do. I feel fine about that. Sometimes somebody else who gets chosen just had a better idea during their pitch about a pathway to victory that I didn't have. At the end of the day, I'm certainly not going to hold a grudge because somebody got chosen for a race that, that I didn't get chosen for, but it's not like I don't want it, but that's, that's just crazy talk. There's a lot of innovation in different types of polling, different types of polling organizations that are not traditional advice giving. There's, the analytics firms that are now part of the process that didn't really exist not that long ago. You earlier made a kind of a distinction between analysts and pollsters. I don't know if you were referring to that kind of 
analytics person. I don't think so. Tell me how you see the rest of the people who are working in that, trying to develop new ways of polling or, or in other areas of analyzing political data. I really actually quite welcome the ideas inside of the political opinion or opinion gathering um, arena. I really do. Anybody who thinks they have all the answers is a liar. They don't. If somebody wants to to try something and they think that they've got a, a pathway forward that solves some of the problems that we know um, are present inside of political polling, great. I want to read the paper that they write about it because I'm going to do that too. Because I want my work to be as good as it can conceivably be. On a campaign, the analytics folks and the polling folks, I mean, we talk all the time. We bounce ideas off of one another. We occupy somewhat different roles in the in the campaign that I think are complementary, not competitive. There's the general expectation on races that have budgets big enough to, to have an analytics firm and a pollster involved in them, that that is the, going to be the nature of that relationship. And it, it usually is. I mean, maybe it was, you know, contentious 10 years ago, but it isn't anymore. Is there a question that I haven't asked you that you wish you would be asked? The real questions that we should be asking are about the next generation. I've been doing this for 20 years. And one of the things that I have come to understand, and frankly, that I understand about my life in general, is that I have the measure of professional success that I have today because of the people who were willing to make the introductions and to teach me how to do some of the things that are actually, you know, difficult to do, how to interpret data. And so I think we owe it to make people responsible for what they're doing to train the next generation of people who are coming after us. So not just how you got here, but how are you extending the ladder behind you so that so that the people who are 20 years younger than I am can, you know, sit here and talk to you when you're an old man? How do you operationalize that? Does that mean getting interns? Does that mean younger associates? Does that mean speaking? I think fundamentally it means all of those things. Being willing to to go talk to and frankly, I find it invigorating to see, I do trainings for ARENA, for the Blue Leadership Collaborative. Like I am a believer in the idea that the business of politics is kind of like an apprenticeship. Like a craft. Yeah, it's like being a plumber. And you can read about plumbing in a book but you don't really understand what plumbing is until you're standing in the shit. <laughs> uh, that, that was all too real there. <laughs> <laughs> and that is what I believe this is. Like, what are you doing? 
what are you teaching? How are you bringing people behind you to make sure that, you know, the next generation of people is ready and just as good? Because if you're not doing that, then we're letting the team down. I took a walk with a friend the other day in Rock Creek Park and we were talking politics. I was expressing my concern about 2022 and 2024. And I can't but worry that the fight with the Trumpists and their ilk is long from over and that they may well come back into power in Congress in less than two years and and even into the presidency, either through Trump or someone like him. He said he always likes to talk to me, thinks of me as like a pragmatic pessimist and which might be true. I don't know. But like, can you assure me that we're out of the woods with Trump? He's dead. He's gone. And that the Republicans aren't going to come back and take Congress the way I feel like they may well. Mm, No, (laughs) I I cannot assure you of that. (laughs) Um, Perhaps you're, you're unaware, but I think our firm has a reputation of being somewhat Eeyore-ish. <laughs> that, that's where I find myself often, too. <laughs> well, we're donkeys, you know, yeah. as a party, it seems quite we're donkeys fitting. donkeys as a party, it does, it does fit. <laughs> I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make note of that. <laughs> However, this is a very strange moment in time. All of uh, political science should tell you that 2022 should be bad. pretty much a wretched year for Democrats. We are in charge of everything. And typically, you know, the first midterm, it's not great. But there are a couple of things that I think need to be considered in that equation. One of them is that Joe Biden had no coattails. Right. So you can't lose what you didn't win. He didn't drag people in on his coattails the way that Barack Obama did in 2008, the way that many Republicans were dragged in on Reagan's coattails. Like they're they're just the things that happen as a result of the presidential that make, you know, the sad midterm all the more possible. Well, we lost all those seats, not quite all of them, but a lot of them. All of those House seats and Senate seats. We lost the close races. We lost all the seats that Trump won. And we won the seats that Biden won. It except wasn't, for Maine. Yeah. Except for Maine and um, uh, one more. Who's, who will come to me if I, can, if I can think about it? That's not normally what happens. Usually the presidential produces something. So one, the coattail effect is not there. And two, because we're in this very unique moment in time, we have an enormous amount of pent up economic demand. And I think you're starting to see the signs of it right now. I think that it is possible that we can have the kind of moment in 2022 that the Republicans had in 2002. That has long been my, where, what, The election was going to be about, because let me be clear, anyone who was looking at the data in the summer of 2001 was going to tell you Democrats were going to have an awesome year in 2002. George W. Bush decided it was a great idea to try to reform Social Security and Americans who are 60 plus were 
mad at George W. Bush. His numbers were terrible. We were going to have an amazing year. And then 3,000 Americans were dead as the result of uh, a terrorist attack. And we no longer cared about Social Security. We cared about something else entirely. You need that kind of a watershed moment to break historical norms. And 2021 and 2022 show all of the signs of being able to break historic norms as we send kids back to school. I mean, my son is going to college in the fall and the idea that he can actually go there and meet people as a college freshman for the way that I experienced being a college freshman is a level of emotion that I don't normally bring to everyday life. And I think that that along with what is very simply likely to be a huge economic expansion has the potential to buck those trends. So can I assure you that Donald Trump is not coming back? Absolutely not. I firmly believe that he's going to. I don't know why he wouldn't. He's got a shot at it. He's highly likely to be able to get the nomination if he wants it. You know, once you got the nomination. Look, if I was Donald Trump, I would start my own party and I would start it right now. And I would force the Republicans to lose in 2022. And then I would have the keys to the kingdom because only if I reunited the Donald Trump party with the Republican party, would they have any success? Well, he doesn't even need to do that though. He, cause he can, he has that party hijacked. Yeah. It's more powerful if they lose. And it is entirely possible that it will be sort of a marginal election. If he forced them to lose, let's just say Senate seats that are not on the table. Well, I hope he does that. <laughs> then he has them. Yeah, then he's got them already. Like he has them for forever. And the only way back for the Republican Party is to acquiesce to whatever it is that he wants. We'll see if, you know, he's got the gumption to do it. He's got plenty of gumption. But I don't know if he'll do that. Jill, such a, a pleasure to talk to you today. Um, anything else you want to say? Can I ask a question? You can ask a question. How did you get pulled into politics? Gradually. I mean, I came from a family that was pretty political. My dad was in a teacher's union, but they were both teachers and they were both very attentive to politics. We talked about it a lot. I read the newspaper every day as a kid. I followed the races. Um, I went to college and studied computer science, but also studied politics. And I started working in, in campaign software as a programmer because I wanted to find something on that boundary. And then I started NGP, which uh, did campaign software, NGP software for many years and is now a big firm. Um, so gradually that interest in politics just informed a lot of things that I did. But I think my family is socialists on all of my grandparents' side going back, Jewish labor activist type people. And it was hard to avoid uh, trying to work to make the country better in, in ways that I think you are too. I don't know how to put an exact finger on it. I know my brother, when I was in high school, he was volunteering for Gary Hart and traveling to Iowa. I'm, I'm from Colorado. He was our senator. 
I thought he would have been a great president. Where are you from? I'm from Boulder. Nice. Yeah. So it goes deep and I, and it's, it's just been a great pleasure for me in this podcast to have an excuse to talk to people like you who are working every day to try to win it for the side that I think makes a lot more sense to fight for. It's a fight worth having. Fundamentally, what unites all of us is a belief in the fundamental tenets of this country. I like to believe that the folks on the other side of the aisle share. And when I've done bipartisan projects, we have very different solutions to some of the same problems. But I have a fundamental respect for my Republican colleagues who do what I do for a living as well. We don't share the same vision of what America should be, but I can hear it when they talk that they believe in their fundamental patriotism as well. And I hope that we can see each other's humanity in that because when we start to strip it away from each other is when we actually have real problems. When we start not to see each other as people. Yeah. And I think both sides are doing a little bit too much of that. And I hope it's something that we can attenuate. It's a fundamental premise of psychology as well. You can do anything you want to something that you don't see as human. Yeah. Well, Great to talk to you today. The reason that I do anything at all is because Jen Palmieri wrote a piece that sort of guilted me into talking to press at all. She said that, you know, when you pick up the newspaper and you read about politics or you pick up anything, almost all of the quotes come from men. And she said, and that's not entirely the men's fault because they return the phone calls and they're willing to go on the record. And unless you're willing to do it too, then you're part of the problem. Wow. I owe this interview perhaps then. Yeah. A hundred percent. Because in general, I, I prefer to do my work and just let the work speak for itself. She guilted me into it in a, you owe it to, you owe it to the profession. You owe it to um, the women who are coming up behind you to demonstrate that we occupy space. I wouldn't last two seconds in Jen Psaki's job because I'd just yell at people and then it would be humiliating for me afterwards. She's pretty deft, isn't she? Oh, it's amazing. When the transition came and she took the stage and it, and it replaced the horror of the spokespeople that we'd had for the last four years... I feel like my cells relaxed. It's just so much better to have. I just really enjoyed somebody walking out there and saying, yes, next question. (laughs) And not maybe demeaning the person that they're about to talk to in some egregious way. You need to look across from the podium and look down and see another human being who is fundamentally just trying to do their job. That was Jill Normington. She's at normingtonpets.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.